Hey everybody, welcome to Two Non-Doctors. I'm Liz Mealy. I'm Maria Shahada. We are stand-up comedians. Stand-up comedians that are currently jobless because of the coronavirus. We're finally going to be the doctors our mothers wanted us to be. Is there anything that we don't know? A lot, actually. We have a lot of questions. Uh, we have a lot of answers. All of them wrong. But we do have access to... Google. And a vet. Oh yeah, my mom's a vet. She knows some stuff. We have to do this So again. every once in a while, we're going to invite her on. No, we don't. We're going to actually use this. <laughs> Welcome to Two Non-Doctors. Hi. Welcome to Two Non-Doctors. I'm Liz Mealy. I'm Maria Shahada. And I cleaned my closet, Maria, and I had to just get it out immediately. What I just have to on just... earth possessed you to do that? I've seen your closet. I have never been more home in my life. I don't... I was really thinking about it yesterday. Like, I don't think people understand how much my rent is for how little I sleep in it. <laughs> like, I don't spend any time in my apartment. And I, I'm a homebody. That's the craziest part about this is I'm a homebody, but I spend no time at home. But between between traveling and sleeping at my boyfriend's, I think I spend anywhere from one to zero times a week in my own apartment. I, so I think, honestly, I think I've stayed at your place more than you have. That is not an exaggeration. When you stayed with me for a couple of months, there was, I think even just that alone, you stay, I've even told people our friendship, we've spent more time together because I travel than we did when we lived in the same city. I see you way more. It's weird. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I moved all, I, I ha I've lived in this apartment five years, maybe almost six years. I moved everything around in my apartment just to feel like I moved, but you know, moving sucks in New York City. So you just, you know, you move your bed from one side to the other and you're just like, I'm a brand new person. It's a huge thing. I get it. I, there's like, I, there's boxes I've never unpacked and I've been here for six years. So I was like, this is ridiculous. Like my, like, that's where like the Maria Kondo, you know, philosophy is like, if it doesn't bring joy, like my version of it is like, if I haven't seen it in five years and I didn't need it, is it really necessary? Right. And so what'd you, my... what'd you unpack? What, what, what'd you find? You're going to make fun of me. I can't wait. Boxes. You have Box. boxes of boxes. Yes. I found two huge boxes of boxes. Anything from like nice ones, like tin ones, like literally nice boxes that you, like you would almost display something in, to cardboard boxes that I got shipping from, to like iPhone boxes. Um, I, a watch I have a watch box from middle school that it's the prettiest thing. And I keep thinking I'm going to use it for something and I don't. And I told myself if I don't figure out a use for it in the next three days, I have to throw it out. And it's really stressing me out. So you're mentally ill. Yes. Yes, I am. Do you know what made me kind of even acknowledge my box issue? <laughs> that was like, it was either a meme or a video that was just like, um, when is a good time to throw out a box? Like there's never a good time to throw out a box or something like that. Just acknowledging that like a good box is hard to get rid of. Like an iPhone box is a nice box. You can store a lot of stuff in it. It is a slight addiction. I I started buying uh, cigar boxes from flea markets. I know I've been traveling with you. Fun fact, I hate the smell of cigars and they make me want to vomit, but I love cigar boxes. What is it about it? Is it the way it closes and it kind of goes, or is it... <laughs> What is it? What's it? What is it they're, about cigar they're, boxes? They're well made. They have a little clasp. Sometimes they have like a little swingy clasp. This makes me kind of slightly understand ASMR in the sense that there's something very satisfying about certain like locks to boxes or clasps. Like even certain jewelry, like when they when the when jewelry has a unique, high functioning, well made clasp, there's like an enjoyment of it. There's a certain thing about certain noises. Tennis. 
I'm terrible at tennis, but I love playing tennis because I love the way the ball sounds when it hits the racket. And people yeah. hate playing tennis with me because I won't get it anywhere near them. They're like, what are you even doing? I'm like, it's not about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a soundtrack. <laughs> I, I threw out at least a box and a half of boxes. And now I have about seven that I told myself I'm going to find a place for them. Like they're going to store something. And if they don't, I have to get rid of them. Because you're either a box person or you're not. Yes, I completely agree with that. I'm also a bottle person. I love the container store. Like it's good that I don't have money because I would spend all my money at the container store. I love things that hold things. What is that? I don't know if that's a girly thing. I don't know like if that's like I kind of wish somebody would tell me stereotypically what that is so that I felt it's about organization. Yeah, I am like, you know me, I'm like an organized queen, but like... You are, but you're not. Like, I don't know. I am, like, I'm you're, very... You're, ve- you're very strange, because your room is, uh, like, to my eyeballs, is clutter, but to yours, it's all in Everybody, order. Everything, yeah, everything has a place. Um, when I stayed in your place for two months while you were gone, I, I put little passport photos of me up, and it was like, as soon as you're like, hey, how's it, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like the first <laughs> thing you noticed. And I was they like, already? There, though. I was <laughs> yeah. very, but I they didn't belong. And you, you were like Monica. Remember when Chandler? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you saw what you were becoming and you stopped yourself. Yeah. That was beautiful. <laughs> I'm really proud of you. You're like, nope, nope. I don't want people to see the side of me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's what I did. And it looks gorgeous. And I have all this room. Um, for my boots, because that's the most important thing, is my knee-high boots. They need a place. That's what I did. I needed to share that. I need to share my box addiction. I'm really excited for you. Thank you. Have you done anything that's opened up your eyes to your mental illness? It's weird that you you talk about, this is my Google, but like I'm at my boyfriend's house, and things have piled up. We all get Amazon packages daily, maybe five, six times a day. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we had a pile of of boxes that like you couldn't even walk past and so I took four hours the other morning and I cleaned but I felt great after like I swept the floors I swept in the couches you know like I got all the dirt in the couch wow and I just felt good and I put fresh flowers in the room it made me feel amazing uh and then a flatmate comes downstairs and just sits on the couch and then like does it acknowledge it and I'm like so (laughs) I cleaned (laughs) nothing if someone doesn't walk in after i've cleaned and you know those videos where like somebody's military um mom or dad has been gone and they like show up at their school that's the kind of response i want when i clean thank you yeah where they're they're, like screaming and they're crying and they're hugging and they're like you got in between the oven and the refrigerator i just can't thank you so much like that's what i want i texted my friend laura and was like I sent her a picture because she used to live in the house. And she was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. It looks so nice. I was like, thank you. That's what I want. I need a girl here. I need someone to understand. (laughs) Nobody wants to do that work. Even if you do do that work, nobody wants to do that work. So the only satisfaction you get is from somebody noticing you did that work. Totally. And well, that and also I sit in the room and I feel amazing. Okay. So you know the, what is it called? The rim around your room, the like the crap it's at the bottom of the floor and it's like raised a little bit from the wall and it collects yes. dust yeah like when you vacuum that or you clean yeah. that like as a kid my dad used to make us like go with like a paper towel and like clean that thing and I'm like nobody sees it and no. so then you know I'm cleaning my room more and more and I'm like oh that is satisfying like even though only like 
because so much stuff is against the wall, you don't see it much. But like when I do catch it, like I'll catch the eye of a corner and I'll be like, oh, you're clean as fuck. I keep admiring one of the couches because I've vacuumed it and I'm just like, you look amazing. So I, I Googled like why cleaning a room helps you mentally. And it does um, because, it, you know, it clears like the clutter is supposed to it's, it stresses you out because you have all the stimulus coming at your your face. And uh, and it, it's a reminder of things that haven't gotten done. Plus, like there's just constant. You're constantly being stimulated by your stuff. Remember when I said, like, I loved hotel rooms because there was nothing there it was pure. It's like I can just get oh, writing yeah. done because there's nothing in the room. Um, it helps you make better food choices, a clean mm-hmm. room or a clean house. You want to eat clean. It's true. Um, I found myself eating like nicer stuff. And, um, you know, but I wanted to know specifically about the flowers because it just felt good. They smell nice. And I was like, why is it important to have fresh flowers in your home? Or why do people, or what does it benefit? And um, yes, it smells nice and that's relaxing. And it looks nice and that's relaxing. But also they give off oxygen. So the air is actually cleaner and it like it rids the air of toxins. That's interesting because yeah. um, I was talking to my roommates. We were talking about Febreze. And so like Febreze, when it came out, what, like 20 years ago or something, was like new technology. Like, like it was this revolutionary technology where it didn't cover up smells. It actually pulled the smells out and eliminated the smells. And like it came out and people are like, did not give a shit. They're like, cool, bro. Like that's, we don't care. But then yeah. when they... And so their advertising was all like revolutionary pool smells out and it, they, nobody gave a shit. And then when they changed the marketing to it was that last bit thing you did after you clean to like make the room fresh. It like it, it was just like that the last thing you do once you're done cleaning that like is the final touch of cleaning. It yeah. changed it like that's how Febreze blew up. So the even though what makes it great is that it pulls smells out and eliminates smells. Nobody cared. It was the fact that it had this fresh, you know, powdery or flowery, whatever you choose, smell. And I think that's kind of the same thing with flowers in general, is that it's it's not only just visually bright and beautiful and like this final touch. To me, it's like that the, the room is clean. You don't see flowers in a cluttered room. A cluttered room is, is just, I think, symptomatic. Like if, if Johnny's in a bad place he he wants to be in a fucking messy room that's like his he wants he likes that you know and i'm like well i'm cleaning because i'm i'm the opposite i want to get out of that and so i need to clean to make myself feel better and then there's that element of control i had a cousin that lived in new york when i was in college and she's like i like buying fresh flowers once a week it just brightens up the room and i was like i don't get it and then i turned like i think it was like early 30s i was like oh i get it now like, I was like, am I an adult? I would do anything yeah. to have fresh flower money. <laughs> like, I, I I genuinely feel the more, the smaller details I notice in life, the older I'm getting. Yeah. I became and, a pillow um, person, like, five years ago. I never understood people that had more than one pillow, and now I have, I have seven pillows on my bed. Yeah. I yeah, Pillows to me, like, I can't, because it's just, it's just all this shit I have to throw off the bed before I go to bed and then put back on the bed in the morning. I sleep next to them. <laughs> I sleep next to him like they're a dead body that I once loved. You you said that like that. You paused and you're like, I sleep next to them. <laughs> I was like, oh my buddy. Yeah, no, it's it's as I was saying it, I was like, it's pretty creepy. And now that I think about it, I don't touch them. I don't touch them. I just sleep next to them. Sometimes they're completely undisturbed because I also are they sleep in the like shape a of pasta. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one of them it does have a cat on it. So that, yeah, I know. Of course it does. That, yeah, that, that, yeah, there yeah. was no doubt. 
in my mind. Okay. Um, we need to move on. I've what revealed this is might be our most vulnerable episode for me, by the way. Yours, like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. From like boxes to talking my pillows. I'm just like, I feel so like naked right now. Um <laughs> mine is what I always talk about because I am slightly obsessed. Um, why do my nails hurt after I take off nail polish? First of all, I'm just clearly obsessed with my nails. I like hate having long nails, they make me feel pretty. I was actually typing the other day because they're really long right now, and they were like click clacking. And I felt so pretty. So I was like typing in the email. And I was like, click, 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 click. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so hot right now. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious. I just, there's something about long nails that just make me feel like a woman. I don't know. I just, I don't know if it's because I bit them when I was younger or that they were unhealthy for so long that it, it took so long for them to get this way. So anyway, I love nail polish, but I don't wear it consistently because it harms your nails over time. So I like to give my nails time to breathe and grow. But um, I've been wearing nail polish like every couple of weeks. So I took off my nail polish and it this, hap- this happens almost every time my nails hurt for like a day to two days. They just, not like like a stabbing pain, just like a kind of throbbing pain. And I just didn't really understand because they look healthy and I don't feel like I've done anything. But then I was like, I guess, you know, acetone is awful for your nails. But the word that sounds like it is the worst. Like it sounds like the bubbling bucket of acid in the end of like Batman films or something. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. I was thinking Terminator where like he just starts to like melt and you're just like, you're just like, oh, I just, I didn't know. And you're just, and some girls just like, you know, if you dip it, it takes the nail polish off right away. Like, yeah, it burns a little bit, but then you can just start over with a fresh color. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is what it said. It said, um, when your nails have polish on them, they like kind of curl up slightly. And when you remove the polish, they flatten. So the pain you feel is the nail actually pulling away or up from the area beneath the nail as it flattens out. I almost don't understand that statement, but I kind of do. The What the paint does to your nail bed and how it makes it feel. And then when you take it off, it, I guess going back down, it just doesn't feel good. I guess you're the push and pull. I thought it was going to be like, bitch, you're ruining your nails. And I was going to get sad, but it didn't say that. So... I mean, that's sort of a relief, but what like, what are you doing to your nails that it is coming off of itself? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's not, nothing, like, nothing about, <laughs> yeah, my, my nails are like, dude, we've been under this for a week. What are you doing? Um, nothing we do to our nails is healthy, but it's so pretty and I can't stop. Yeah, it's funny how that you, like, you feel really pretty with long nails and I just don't, I just don't have that. I like to keep them short, tidy with like, pink or red polish i don't like to go funny with the colors oh, i don't like going along nails. it's a weirder i i want i want to distract a bird with my nails why a bird i don't know it just came <laughs> out <laughs> i want them to think it's like a worm or a snake <laughs> no i i like i like very classic short nails um plus like i i don't like nails in the way when i'm typing and when i'm trying to do things i can't stand that blows my mind mind blow you blow my mind <laughs> all right you want to get into let's get personal yeah. Do you weigh yourself? Yeah. Every day? I mean, I I would if I had a a scale here. So <laughs> <laughs> when I had a scale, the instinct is there every day. I try not to weigh myself every day, but I didn't have a scale in London. Then I bought a scale and then I noticed that that scale decided to give me from a difference of seven pounds, a different weight 
no, depending on where I wasn't standing in the room. So oh. I have no idea how much I weigh. I have no Like if you idea. put it in the bathroom, you were like five pounds heavier and then you put it in the living room and you're like three pounds lighter. Like that. Within the same room, in my bedroom, on a on a flat surface. And uh, in, in one, yeah, it's like, it's a difference of five, six, seven pounds. What? But they tell you like, you're not supposed to weigh yourself. You're supposed to measure yourself. But that's sort of the same because you have to measure yourself at the exact same point every time. And your thigh is a hard thing to measure because your thigh is long. So at what point on your thigh does it... You got to go miss where nasal thigh... where you fucking measure like four different points of your thigh every morning like a cycle. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, but like, yeah, where does my thigh start? I don't know. Because like in the difference of just a few inches on my thigh, I could be just a few inches in circumference difference. It's a huge difference. It, it's dangerous because it can be really disheartening to measure yourself, think you've done well, like food-wise and exercise-wise, and then like be plus two inches, but only because you, you measured in the wrong spot. So there's no good way for me to tell why can't what you I'm just, doing. Why can't you just go by, like, how your clothes fit or how you look in the mirror? Like, why is it, like, is it something mental that you need the number? or is it- I need the number. I need to know I'm making progress. Because I, I think I, f- I fluctuate within five pounds all the time. I need to know I'm making progress. And that progress, like, makes me want to do better and do more. But you, but you know, it's faulty progress, right? Because like muscle weighs more than fat. So like a lot of times when I start to like lose weight or slim down, I actually, I go up a couple of pounds because I'm gaining muscle. So I look better and I fit in my clothes better, but I've actually gained weight because that muscle weighs more than fat. I don't know. I mean, no, that's, that's a fact. Like I know. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a fact, but I'm just (laughs) saying like you still lose weight. You no, you, still... you do, but like, we're also, we're not big people. So like, if you're somebody that's trying to lose 200 pounds, I I get that weighing yourself has value, but we're pretty tiny, small people that whenever we try to lose weight, it's between five to 10 pounds. The fluctuation is going to be uh, different. And and I want numbers, Liz. I I want I know you do particular numbers to tell me I'm on my way. This is where I really think weighing yourself is like some like 1980s, 1990s bad uh, advice kind of shit. Like the same way that they're like your diet should be mostly you know mostly bread with a little bit of vegetables. You're like what? Who who made this fucking food pyramid? I'm not saying I don't ever weigh myself, and like I've. I, my weight used to be pretty consistent. And then when I was like running marathons and then clearly as soon as I stopped, my body was just like, we're going to get bigger now. And that, you know, made me sad because they don't make the jeans I like anymore. So I have to kind of maintain my weight to fit into my, this is how you like, even though I don't have kids, this is where I feel like a mom. I was just like, I want to fit into my old jeans and I never want to change styles. And I have to maintain my weight to wear my jeans that I've had for 10 years. Um, but I think the best thing I've ever done is not weigh myself and not not um, measure myself, but literally go by how my my favorite pair of jeans fits or like focus more on eating better or exercising, whatever it is that I'm focusing on, if it's both or one or the other, like those goals being more diligent and then being more of like a, and I'm a measure person. I love putting stuff down and making charts and like, like I'm very much, I like having a a goal like I want to lose five pounds, but I, I've kind of realized it's detrimental and it doesn't really help. And it, it can be so easily, I just feel like I could be in a place of really good progress. And all I have to see is that number, not 
go up or not be the number I want. And it can deflate all the hard work I've done and all the good work I've done on something that's so arbitrary and inaccurate. Mm. Okay. So you're saying it's probably having the opposite effect for me. An opposite effect when what you're doing is right. Also, but I didn't weigh myself for a long time and I put on 20 pounds. I get, if I saw that coming, I would have like put a stop to it probably earlier on. I get that. But that's, that's, but that weight came because of habits, did it not? Whether drinking or what? Exactly. But that, that's the thing. But if I saw like 10 pounds in, I'd have been like, oh, holy shit, things need to stop now. But I didn't weigh myself for so long. And then I was just, I think I was home for Christmas. And I, I got on the scale and I was like, oh my God, you know, cause I didn't see it. Cause you see yourself every day. You don't see it. So I don't see the progress if I am losing weight. That's why I like the scale. I just wonder if it should be like a once a month thing as opposed to every day. I think it should be uh, once every couple of weeks. I don't think it should be every day because you're just going to fluctuate so much. Like, yeah. That's, that's the other weight. thing. Yeah. It fluctuates so much that you're like the fact that like the next day you can be three pounds heavier is so infuriating and like upsetting like it's a day ruiner and like when I do weigh myself it's in the morning and I know yeah. I think you have to I think you're supposed to if you do do it you're supposed to be consistent so if you're gonna do morning it should be every morning if you're gonna do um night it should always be at night whatever you decide but like what a horrible way to start a day I guess unless you're the perfect size but like why are you weighing yourself if you're the exact size you want to be to see that number yeah. oh that's great <laughs> That's like when I get like a big check in my bank account and it like I see it deposited and then the next day I go to just check on it. Like I go to visit I know, my you money. Just look at it. And you visit it. <laughs> I do that. Oh. Yeah. Especially like when it like rent is like in a couple of weeks. So it's like the check happens. It's going to be there for a while. And I just look at it and I'm like, oh, you're there, buddy. Okay. Well, tell <laughs> the other ones to multiply. I don't know. Start having sex with all these other dollars because we need more of you. <laughs> I do think that that helps. Like somehow like mentally it puts you in this positive state of mind and it brings more money into your life sure yeah okay um <laughs> now i'm the vulnerable one yeah you're like great i mean we both just admitted that we visit our money uh should we get into why we're such healthy individuals oh yeah um okay so our topic is therapy which i think we're gonna relate in a lot of ways but i think we also got into therapy in very unique ways so i kind of want to know what got you, like for me, I was so my family's anti therapy and I was anti therapy. So just even the act of getting into therapy was its own progress. And then, of course, therapy itself is a progress. But I'm very curious to know, like, what was the turning point that got you into therapy? And then how has like therapy helped you? And then I think the biggest thing that I hear when people are anti therapy is they're like, what I'm just going to tell some stranger my problems, like, or this person's just going to listen to me talk. Or this person's going to tell me what to do. Like, there's all these mis misinformation about what therapy is. I would. We don't have to kind of go into exactly all the different types of therapies, but like, what kind of therapy did you get into, and how has it helped you, and why? Um. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that therapy has super helped. Um. I didn't stick to it though. Like, you you've been in it consistently for eight years or or something, but I I never st stuck to it, and I think. I think it's the kind of thing where it's like you learn something about yourself and you go, oh, yeah. But if you don't constantly hear it, it doesn't stick. I got into it because honestly, I felt like I felt like there was some sort of block in my career and I felt like I was doing it like I like self-sabotaging. I was self-sabotaging. I was doing a sort of like come here, go away with my career. And I'm still scared to this day. But like, you know, I didn't want to put myself out there. I didn't want to I didn't want to be seen. 
but I wanted attention my career to work out as a stand-up comedian yeah like but I didn't want to be seen so there wasn't really a lot of uh sense making in that regard and I I I just really felt like I was getting in the way of myself what was like what was the thing it was just that you felt stuck in your career like nothing happened yeah my first therapist kept giving me practical advice like she was my mother she's like well you know my sister like um changed careers or (laughs) it was just I was like, I'm not asking for practical steps to take towards my Etsy shop. I wanted to figure out why that fear was there. Well, that's what she, was blocking me. I think everybody's first therapist, not everybody, but like I've noticed everybody, their first therapist sucks because you, you don't really? really know. Yeah. My first therapist sucked. Um, in general, I think picking out a therapist is its own feat because like nobody wants to hear this. It's a little bit like dating in the sense that you go, you go, no, I don't think I want to be vulnerable with this person. And then you go to somebody oh, else definitely. and you go, ah, I can't tell, but something's off. Like there's just something like they're not the worst. We click sometimes, but this isn't right. And then of course you find your therapist and you're like, yes, she's laughing when I'm laughing. She says things that blow my mind. Like it's a little bit of work and it's already a scary thing to do. And you're already in a vulnerable place that that's a hard place to do work. It's like almost like if your husband got hit by a car and died and somebody's like, you should start dating. And you're like, what? Why would I do that now? Like I should heal. But like, that's kind of the state you're in. A lot of times when you go to find a therapist, you're in like the worst mental state. And now you have to like, look for the person that's going to help you. It seems like a weird, like I shouldn't be allowed to make this decision, but in some ways you kind of do. Oh, I never told you about my first, first experience with therapy. It was when I was having panic attacks in college. Oh. And he was so mean to me. Really? I, I can't remember. I only saw him once. But I remember trying to, like, open up to him. And he was so unsympathetic and actually a little judgmental. Not even a little. <laughs> like, is my dad your therapist? <laughs> but oh, I wish I could remember what he said. But I was so put off by it. And so I never went back, obviously. I think there was a little distrust of therapy for a long time. Oh, of course. And you were what, in high school or college, you said? I was in college. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, there's so many bad therapists out there. There's so many, there's bad doctors. Like, that's what's kind of hard is like, you want to say like certain professions are heroes. We're going around saying firefighters are heroes. And like, you know, with the pandemic, we're like doctors and nurses. But you're like, yeah, of course, so many of them put their lives on the line. And there's, they go to school for a long time. And they're, they're doing the best they can, but there's just bad ones out there that just get to still call themselves doctors when they're actually doing more harm than good. And I know that like other people shouldn't be judged by one bad apple, but it is a little frightening when somebody is so fucking scared to open up and they see a bad therapist and you're like, cool, that person will never be able to open up again because this person that was supposed to help didn't do their job. Yeah. I I just, the last one I had in London, she made sense, but like, I don't know how to explain her. I didn't like her. And I don't think she liked me. So what she said made sense eventually when I like sat back and thought about it. But like the message wasn't getting across because I had to get through this barrier of I don't like you and you don't like me. What made what made you think she didn't like you? It seemed like she had an impatience for me. So I was I was with my ex ex at the time and I would tell her about a situation that would arise with us, which there were plenty of problems. And she seemed to take his side all the time as if I was being a brat. Oh. And, and you know my ex. And yeah. you know I'm not being a brat. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really hard. because So I'm, I'm, I'm explaining things to her. And I'm just like, it's just almost like in the simplest of terms, she would be like, so what did you do to make him do that? Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right, right. So. Which is like, but like, how was that not like old school? Did you, did you make a bad casserole? 
like maybe you made a bad casserole and that's why he threw it. Like, you know, right, you know, right. This little bit like, well, if you were a better wife, maybe this wouldn't have happened. That's how I felt she was coming at me. So I was like, fuck you, you know, but um, it was free therapy. So. <laughs> Do you feel I like therapy but... helped you had any breakthroughs or made you realize things you wouldn't have realized on your own? Because like I'm I've always read self-help books. My dad is a self-help book addict. I feel like I've gone through self-help book addict, you know, addictions. Like there is something about self-help that has value and that also is comforting. But my biggest thing, because as somebody that tried to push my dad into therapy for a while, was that there's blind spots that you can only with self-help, you can only fix what you're aware of and that you're willing to be open about as opposed to therapy or even just having a close friend that you trust. Somebody outside of you can hold a mirror to you and go, hey, well, you're not seeing this this puzzle piece. You're not seeing this part. Like, this is happening because this is happening, and you're not acknowledging this other thing. She did say one thing that made me realize, like, the way I deal with conflict, I tend to avoid it. I'm, I'm sort of a run type of person, <laughs> you know, because we were talking about, like, my childhood. And, like, when my dad was angry, she was like, what would you do if your dad came home angry? I'd be like, well, I would just stay in my room. Well, why didn't you talk to your dad and find out why he's angry and I'm like what are you insane <laughs> you know why would I do that he's in a bad mood he comes home in a bad mood he opens the mail it's in a bad mood I'm not gonna be like hey dad talk to me about why you're in a bad mood yeah I know I'm, I'm nine but let, let me hear about your adult problems but I've carried this way of of dealing with conflict throughout my adult life of just running from conflict rather than talking to people about things of course I'm just and confronting people and that that is a flaw huh no I've, I've always been the same way like I I I just, one of the biggest aha moments I've had from therapy is that you build these coping mechanisms that help you when you're younger. You know what I mean? Like whether it's because you're being bullied at school or because things aren't well at home or what have you, you build up mechanisms to get through life and to protect yourself. Then you get thrown into the real world where you might not have those issues anymore, but you keep doing that defense mechanism because it's always worked for you. And your brain goes, well, it worked before. Why wouldn't I keep applying the same uh, tactics? So like my analogy is always that like you had a, a, like a, like a wood burning furnace when you were younger to keep warm. So it makes sense to chop down wood, collect it, bring it inside, and then feed it to the furnace. But now you live in a building with central heating. Why are you chopping down wood? You're wasting your energy with these, these habits that you no longer need. Yes, you needed it 20 years ago, but you don't need them now. They're not helping you now. It's just a waste of time right. and energy. So it's just like a matter of being able to see those habits and then trying to stop them. Absolutely. And like, that's so fucking hard. Like, that's the, the biggest thing is like, acknowledge, like the, the breakdown of, of breaking a habit is from acknowledging that there's a problem in general. You might not even know what exactly the problem is, just there is a problem. So it's acknowledging that there's a problem. Then it's pinpointing what the problem is then it's going back and figuring out when you started this habit or problem then it's being aware of it so you keep doing it but now you're angry that you're doing it because you see your, yourself doing this bad habit then it's the process of stopping yourself in the middle of it or right before you do it and then eventually it's not doing it at all that for me that whole process for certain habits took three years yeah and I I'm barely recognizing <laughs> some like you know, because I still have this fear about like putting myself out there. I still have anxiety that comes up like, I don't know, I, uh, whatever. But um, 
I'm just saying like, I, at least I, I recognize what I was doing. If I, if anything I got out of all the therapy, I recognized that I was at least, but I think I've recognized it going in. I don't get, I don't know. I didn't get anything out of therapy. Really? You really don't feel like all the different people you went to helped at any point? Uh, I, if anybody helped the most, it was the one here in London. But um, yeah, she helped me see a couple things. But but as far as my career goes, I still feel like I'm sabotaging. As somebody that's like seen your career for 15 years, I mean, I can see some of the habits because I, I relate to them. But I think I think you've made more and more progress. I think in, in some ways you expect to go to therapy, acknowledge it, and then because you acknowledged it, everything's just going to work out in your career when really you're just taking the bumpers off and giving yourself the ability to succeed more as opposed to before you kept hitting these sides and not really allowing yourself even the opportunity. So I think what's hard is that like if you were in a more straightforward career, just by stopping the self-sabotage, you would fluctuate forward really fast. But just show business in general, just because you stop self-sabotaging yourself doesn't mean that the, the that Hollywood's going to open up and be like, welcome. You did it. Yeah, totally. You, fi <laughs> you figured out the riddle. So it's like, I think what's hard is that even with... That'd be awesome. Oh, God, that. it would be so nice. But even though you got rid of maybe some of your emotional blockages to self-sabotaging, this career is so bullshit <laughs> and hard <laughs> and ridiculous <laughs> and relentless that it feels like you didn't really get much from it. Because I've seen progress in you. Well, that's good. And that's also the hard thing, too, is that I think, I think as a society, we're obsessed with tangible physical results. The same way we talk about weighing ourselves. If I wanted to lose five pounds and I don't lose five pounds, everything was for nothing. When really like your organs could be functioning better, you could ha be having better skin and, and just, just feeling like internally better. People could um, see something in you that makes them feel like you're happier or better. But we're like, no, I still, I'm still five pounds heavier. So I, I think the same thing could go with growing mentally, which is that you'd be like, well, I don't have a boyfriend or I'm not living in a, a home or I don't have my dream job. So it's not working when really people are like, actually, all these other things are lining up in a way that wouldn't have lined up before. Or I see you're handling conflict better um, than you ever have. Or I don't feel scared to tell you that you hurt my feelings like I did 10 years ago. Like, it's funny, you you reminded me that I did see a therapist when I was in high school. Like, I always say that I started seeing a therapist when I was 25, but that's actually not true. I was, like, kind of suicidal, kind of. I was suicidal. Um, I don't know why I put the kind of there. Um, I was very, very depressed and suicidal in high school, and I made threats, and um, I was put in therapy. And this is one of my original jokes when I was 16 years old and I first started doing stand-up. I remember this so clearly. I went for a walk with my dad after things were kind of like serious and like my school got involved and my dad was like, you know, I think you need to talk to somebody. So, you know, your choices are you could talk to me every day or you could see a therapist. And I was like, therapist. Um, <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. Thanks for offering. Yeah, great, great <laughs> suggestion. I don't know if that was like a money saving suggestion, but we're going therapist. <laughs> and I think I saw her maybe three times. I, this is the hard thing is that like, the school was like, she needs to talk to somebody. And my dad was like, okay, she needs to talk to somebody. But like, if your parents say every time that they don't believe in therapy, and then you start to see a therapist, you're not going to magically be like, my parents don't believe in it, but I believe in it. So like, I just, I didn't believe in it. I was very depressed. I didn't see a point. 
I had almost no friends and no ability to even open up on a basic level, let alone a vulnerable level. And I just, I couldn't do it. And my parents didn't really pressure me after a couple of sessions to do it. So I just continued to be the shut down, sad self. I was just slightly less suicidal. Honestly, if I'm being like, it's that cheesy, like comedy saved me, but comedy saved me. Like discovering standup, writing standup, um, showing my friends my standup and then actually performing standup and having these goals of getting on stage and getting better changed my life and changed my perspective and really gave me something to kind of live for and feel better about and feel less depressed about. And that was kind of a, a mental turning point was just having something I liked and, and cared about because I didn't have that. And then I continued to be my um, sad, shut down self just in, intermittently, you know, and um, when I was 25, my boyfriend at the time, who was my long, was literally my most, like, I would say my, I had technically boyfriends before, but like, they lasted three months and they called themselves my boyfriend, but it wasn't real. <laughs> he was the first guy that like dated for three years, talked about, we ended up living together not very long. He talked about getting married and stuff like that. It was like a, like a real relationship. And within a week, my best friend from high school, and him had both sat me down in different parts and was like, you're not okay. Like, you're not okay. And I'm worried. And I was so, I felt crazy. But when anybody tried to bring up the fact that I might be crazy, I flipped out at them. I was like, like, it was like, I don't know, I can't, I don't even know if I have an analogy for it. Like, I was so scared that there might be something wrong with me, that when people brought up that there might be something wrong with me, my biggest fears were coming coming true oh yeah it's like how i feel when people try to talk to me about money i have a short fuse when it comes to talking about money yeah because it's it's if you know there's an issue there you know it has real consequences but right now it feels hopeless slash unattainable to fix it so what's the point of talking about it yeah. and that's kind of how i felt about my mental health i know there's a problem i have a huge my there's so much mental illness in my family it's like let's put it this way i i did a podcast didn't come out yet, but a friend of mine has a podcast called um, Why Not to Kill Yourself. And you have to do a little pre-interview and they ask a bunch of questions. And one of the questions is like, have you ever had suicidal thoughts or attempted suicide? And I've really never talked about that stuff. And it was the first time probably in like 10 years, I really sat down and thought about it. And so I gave a little bit of my family history and a little bit of my kind of suicidal thoughts history. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, this is a fucked up family and this is a fucked up history and you know about it and, and friends know about it, but I, I'm not exaggerating until I was 25. I think four people knew about it. It was like this deep, dark secret about my family history. I was ashamed of it. I was scared of it. And I believed, I believed I was going to lose my mind at any moment. And I wasn't going to know that it was happening and that I was going to lose like everything, like anything I worked for in comedy, my, my friends, whatever. It wasn't until, and I was, I was really depressed and really sad and just like, just on like, I was always blowing up at people. I had really bad mood swings and I didn't like myself. Like, I don't think I could have said I don't like myself, but now I can look back and be like, oh, I absolutely didn't like myself. And then when my boyfriend and my, my friend both said something, it was the first time that I was able to like it was, I don't even know how it happened. There was this little sliver, like this little voice that was like, if the people that love you the most think you need help, maybe you need help. And I, I right. wish I could find where that awareness came from because I was very unself-aware 
And I was very scared to admit that there might be a problem. But it was the like, I think it was because my boyfriend was extremely loving. And I'm, I feel very fortunate that he was as loving as he was throughout our relationship. And at that moment, he was extremely forgiving. He was very mature. And he was very loving. So I was like, okay, if this person loves me and says it, and the same, I would say with my friend, Amanda, who, who said it too, they were both consistent people in my life that were loving and they didn't threaten me and they didn't say it made them love me any less. They just said, you seem not okay. And it's going outside of our bounds as boyfriend and friend. And so I saw a therapist when I was 25 and she wasn't good. For, like she wasn't horrible, but she didn't do anything. What was helpful is I had all this family history and all this childhood trauma and all this pain and I dumped it on somebody. I literally, it's like I had, you know how like you have that box of like old cards and pictures and like weird stuff your friend gave you in like high school and like old pictures of boyfriends, like it's all in like one big box. I feel like I just dumped 25 years of memories and sadness on this woman and just the act of sharing everything without any restraint on another person lifted me I would say about 20%. Like I just started to like I just felt a little less heavy. I used to do that um but with really bad poetry. <laughs> <laughs> no, call friends and be like I wrote something oh, yeah, yeah and you're like <laughs> sadness darkness the twilight was <laughs> and they're like the rain on my soul is nothing compared yeah. for this umbrella yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know but yes go on yes. it's called brutal umbrella um <laughs> yeah so I did that and I would say the first like month two months just the act of dumping was enough. I don't feel like she said anything that had value. She gave me a book about like um, losing somebody to suicide, which that was kind of helpful. Cause again, that was something I wouldn't acknowledge or talk about, but mm -hmm. um, she didn't give, she didn't say anything of value. She rarely said stuff. And when she did, I didn't like it. One of the big issues for me, and I think probably for both of us is I'm a know-it-all and even in therapy, I'm a know-it-all. Like, never been to therapy, don't think it's good, refuse to do it, don't think it has value. And, like, a therapist would be like, you know, with all my training and da-da-da-da-da, and I'd be like, nah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I butt heads with her mentally because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't connect with her, and I, I thought she wasn't good at her job. And then I took, like, maybe eight months off so I did it for three months. And then in the eight months I took off, my boyfriend dumped me, told me he didn't love me anymore. Um, I was homeless for a while. Um, felt very stuck and lost, both clearly romantically, financially, and with my career. And I was just at the lowest of lows because like, I really did think I was going to marry this guy. And, you know, he was the first boyfriend I lived together and we lived together for six months and he stopped talking to me two days into us living together. So it went back. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, you do. Um, I lived with you for a month right afterwards. Um, that was awesome. It, you were in a bad place, but I was so excited. To have I you. was. <laughs> and I, you just like made me bread and like made me go on hikes I didn't want to go on um, in LA. And I'm very grateful to you because I was not fun to be around. And you, you never made it feel like you, like I would like, cr like literally, I would be like laying in your bed crying and you'd be like, okay, but do you want a snack? And I'd be like, yeah, I want a snack. <laughs> like, like you would like listen like I never felt like you were like trying to brush it off like you would listen 
and you would be like, you clearly need to get that out of your system. And now should we start our day? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, I just felt like every day we started with <laughs> crying about our life. What I remember so clearly, um, talk about vulnerable memories. There was a guy in that month that had a crush on me. Oh, yeah. Very cute, oh, God, I love very this cute guy. Very <laughs> nice guy. And he had, he had a crush on me, but he was, he was a comedian. He was unwatchable. Absolutely unwatchable. Very, again, so sweet, very nice, un, like a level of unwatchable that just upset me. And you kept being like, he likes you. And I was like, that's nice. And you'd be like, but he likes you. And I'd be like, that's nice. And then we were watching him do stand up and I started crying. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course I do. It was the funniest thing <laughs> ever because, because you sort of like you would you would indulge, you would talk to him. Like you weren't like super excited, but you were kind of like tentatively and you hadn't seen a stand up yet at this point. Yes. I don't know. I don't think I did. So I was like, oh, this is nice. He's a nice guy, you know, like and you're like, yeah, her. You know, but you were just coming out of a breakup. So I didn't expect you to be, ooh, who's this? But you were like giving him a shot and he was cute and he was nice to you and he did like you a lot. And then we're sitting in the back of the room. He goes up on stage and he's so bad that you just, I, you just burst into tears in the back of the room. But like truly like, like I just got dumped tears. Like I was so, it was so heartbreaking because like, I guess I was trying to see like a sign that maybe I was being reserved. Like I was being stupid for not indulging in this guy. Like, like not giving this guy a real chance. And I saw his stand up and I was like, I'm going to be alone forever. Like I was just like, <laughs> well, and it also makes you miss oh, your last guy. He was, was yeah, he was hilarious. And, like, he, was funny. he was hilarious both so, on and off stage. And that's, you know, with this guy, he was nice, but he didn't make me laugh off stage. So then I thought maybe he'll make me laugh on stage. And that was worse. And I, it was, I was heartbroken. And then it just made me feel like I was going to be alone forever. Like I was never going to find somebody that made me laugh or I felt connected to or. And we've all oh, been there. Like after a breakup, you think like that was the person and they're gone and everyone else in the world is shit. And here's an example yeah, of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this, these are the ones that like me. I was so, I was so upset. <laughs> I but I'd know I understood you so wholeheartedly yeah. though. Like I got it. I wasn't like you started crying and I was like, what the fuck? I was like, Yeah, I, 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 I almost it. feel like you took me out like in a FEMA blanket and was like, We gotta get her home. Yeah. <laughs> like she's uh just lost everything and we need to get her home immediately. Dude, I can see the bar oh too, God. like that upstairs room. Like I that was such a strong memory, such a strong, sad memory. But really what happened is I I, I fell into a deep, deep, deep depression was a, a different level of not okay than I was when I was dating somebody. And my friend Nitika was like, my therapist is amazing. When you're ready, let me know. And I kept being like, no, no, therapy's stupid. Therapy's dumb. And I hit such a rock bottom. Like I was babysitting a kid. I watched this kid for years and I was babysitting a kid. And I don't know why, but buses made me cry. And I would pick this kid up from school we would get on a bus and I would start crying on the bus. And like, then I would take him to tennis and I would watch him play tennis and I'd be fine. And then we would get on the bus to go home and I would start crying again. I was crying every day, all day, but mostly in moving vehicles. Like the subway would make me cry. Like anytime I had just like, I do the same. I don't what know is what that, that? Is, but I don't know. But like, there's something about being on a subway. Is it just that you're you're alone and there's you're not talking to anyone, or what is it? Because I I I cry on subways 
all the time. Dude, it is. It's subways and buses and like in the back of cars. Like I just. Yeah. Oh, do you know how many backs of cabs yeah. I've tried in? So, so many. So many. I don't know what that is in the sense of like, maybe I felt alone during transportation as a child or the fact that movement. I feel like this needs to be like its own topic. Like the fact that movement oh, totally. itself, because like, you know how like movement puts you asleep. Like if you want your kids asleep, you put them in a car seat and you go for a drive. It's like oddly comforting and the comforting makes you open up and cry. I don't know what it is, but I was, I was watching this kid and I would try to hide my tears from this kid. There was a couple of times he's like, are you okay? And I was like the pollen. It was winter. I was like the pollen, uh, like just giving this bad, this kid bad like tree science. So when he grows up to have a girlfriend and she starts crying, he's like, oh, oh is there Yeah, you're like, oh, man, the pollen this year must be crazy. She's like, no, you're a horrible boyfriend. <laughs> so I, I hit a real, real bottom. I finally asked my friend and she recommended her therapist. And I, I've been seeing her for eight years. She's, she has changed my life. I, I get, so there's two things. I would say that breakup, it was a horrible breakup for too many reasons. But um, that breakup was so bad and so hard it changed my life and it was painful and I never want to go through something like that again but that I needed I needed to hit some kind of emotional rock bottom to get help and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me like that breakup I feel like a shadow of the person I was when I was 25 and I feel I went into therapy not realizing how much I hated myself not realizing how unhappy I was and not realizing how many self-sabotaging emotional self-sabotaging habits I had in friendships and in relationships and just in connecting with anybody. There were things that my boyfriend, my ex-boyfriend at the time tried to tell me, like very lovingly tried to tell me like, you do this and it hurts us. You do this and it hurts you. And I wouldn't listen because I couldn't hear anything negative about myself because I felt like he was attacking me. And then I got into therapy and my therapist was pretty much saying the same thing my ex had been saying. And I was ready to acknowledge it. And I remember I, I blocked him because it was there was a lot of toxicity at the end. And we got coffee maybe four years later. And I apologized to him. Like he apologized to me because there was shit that he did. But I apologized to him where I was like, you tried to help me not be as toxic as I was. And I didn't listen. And it took three years of therapy. And clearly somebody outside of that connection, because I also think it's hard to hear things that aren't great about you from people you love because you feel like it's attacking as opposed to this outside person that isn't emotionally involved in your life and they're just giving you facts. She showed me my habits with a mirror. You know what I mean? She held up this kind of emotional mirror to me, made me understand why I was doing them and then gave me tools to not continue to do with, do them. And like I said, it was Two, I must have cried in her office every single session for two to three years. And the most painful process of therapy for me was acknowledging, like seeing the bad habits and seeing how they push people away or how they are toxic and still doing them because I didn't know how to stop it. That self-awareness with inability is like, it feels like you're wearing, like, it feels like you're being waterboarded where you're like, I can't survive this way, but I can't stop it. And then once you get the tools and you can start slowly not partaking in these bad habits, like it took years. And I I remember this memory so clearly about two years in, I go, can we just have a session where we don't find out something that sucks about me? (laughs) Like, I was like, this is, (laughs) this is like, it's starting to weigh on me. Like, like it was too much like epiphanies and every epiphany was like, I suck. 
And, you know, she clearly wasn't saying it that way, but that's how I interpreted it. It was painful. Like, I remember I was trying to help my dad. My dad went to a therapist uh, last year a couple of times. I don't think he continued with it. But my dad was like, I don't know if I'm like, he's like, I'm in my 60s. Like, he's like, there's a lot to unpack. And I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it. And it was like a very vulnerable thing for him to say. And I completely understood it. Like, it's really painful. It's like you're in a room and nobody's cleaned in 30 years. And you're like, this is, it's too stressful to try to even. Where do you start? Where do you start? (laughs) Do you start from like the the clumps of dust? Do you throw things out or do you just throw bleach on everything? And just like, do you take a power hose to it? Like it's, it's so stressful and it's so much. And talk about you move a dresser and you find like dead rats. Like, I feel like there were so many like emotional things that my, my therapist would like move a memory to the side and we would discover all because I I blocked out a lot of my childhood I don't think I realized like I still struggle with memories very young and I don't have complete memories but she would open up a box she would open up a like well why do you feel that way and she was like she would ask a question and I would tell a memory and then she was like why do you think you react that way and I would start to like either in that session or like throughout the week until the next session think about it and then it would be like truly like a box of dead rats where you're like, ah, ah why did I save this? <laughs> like, like I, I can yeah. see why I, I didn't, I didn't bury it, but I don't also know why I kept it over here. And it would be like, you mean you found a box full of boxes. <laughs> I love your brain so much. <laughs> see, I, I guess I wanted to share both perspectives where like, I think the right, it's in, in my mind, when I hear your story, I think, you didn't have the right therapist and it's really hard to get the right therapist and it takes work. But like my therapist unlocks something. Like I get emotional thinking about it. Like she saved me in a lot of ways. And like you were my friend before therapy and I give a lot of credits to my friends before therapy because I was a lot. Like I was very chaotic and I still, I'm not saying, you know, like I'm cured. I I mean, you still deal with a lot of my bad habits and I'm very grateful for it because I'm easily overwhelmed and I get very flustered and you've seen me go from nice Liz to I will murder your family Liz I really don't like you're probably the easiest person for me to get along with so I don't know if that makes me like in like crazy too a little yeah um Um. the only thing I remember about like you pre-therapy was that I made you a Portuguese kale soup and you hated (laughs) me for introducing you to kale and that's my only (laughs) but I, I would like to know um if therapy has helped you Maybe even if you haven't gone to therapy, what you're scared about, because that might be helpful to kind of talk about, like the misconceptions of what therapy is. We are on Patreon. Yeah, yeah. we're on Patreon. Um, what else do we have? We have, you can email us at two non-doctors, full word doctors. Uh, we are on all social media at two non-doctors. Uh, for Instagram, though, it's two non-DRS. Um, you should subscribe. Why aren't you subscribing? Subscribe to us. Um, if you listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher, please uh, rate and review us. That helps us out a lot. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you Yay. liked this episode. That was fun. Bye. Bye. Have you done anything that's opened up your eyes to your mental illness? <laughs>